Hello, and thank you for choosing Starting Somewhere, the podcast where you hear from someone in the early stages of their working life to find out how they got to where they are, what they actually do every day, and just to get an honest look as to what your life might look like if you also start out in that area. I'm your host, Michael Watson, and I am so excited about today's episode. Since graduating from Harvard University in 2015, Linda Negron has worked as an engineer and product leader in the tech and startup space at companies like Tinder, BiasSync, and Pando. I really love this conversation because not only does Linda speak in depth about her experience working in tech, but also about how teams can be most effective, how diverse perspectives can save lives, the importance of feedback, and how ego can be a massive hindrance to success. And really quick, please make sure to stick around for the follow-up after our interview where I will help to unpack some of what we said, explain any technical jargon used, and thank our sponsors. Please enjoy my conversation with Linda Negron. Linda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So I want to get started with the official first question of the podcast, which is what did you want to be when you were little? So this is kind of a complex question just because I feel like I was definitely very influenced by whatever movie was hot at the time. So what I wanted to be when I was little was very much constantly like whatever, uh, you know, female icon I could find on TV. You know, there were times where I wanted to be a lawyer. There were times where I wanted to be a doctor. But I think that the one dream that I had that stuck the longest was to be a spy. And I don't know why and I don't know which specific TV show or movie like made that really want to be my passion. But I had this dream of being undercover and like, you know, getting the bad guy and being the one that delivers yeah. justice in like a very sneaky way. That's awesome. That would be an awesome job. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so then let's go. So we'll flash forward. Obviously, the spy training did not, you know, fully realize or at least not yet so far. Yeah. Right. So then you uh, you're from New York City, right? You're from New York. Uh, I'm from Long Island, technically. Um, yeah. Long Island. I don't want to okay. upset the Manhattanites who are like, mm, you're not from New York City. From New York regardless. And then you went to Harvard for undergrad. From the perspective of someone that had zero possibility of attending Harvard, it seems like if you chose to go there, you could have also probably gone other places. Mm-hmm. Or at least, you know, that's that's what it would seem like. What was that decision like to choose to go there? Yeah, so when I was in high school, I had this harsh realization where I was a scholarship kid at a prep school and all of my friends, you know, they had their dream school, right? Like they had like not just like the most prestigious school they could get to. It was, oh, I want to go to this specific school because my parents went there or because they have the best this kind of program or the campus is really fun or you know something. Um, for me, it was just whichever school was going to pay my full ride. Um, I wouldn't have been able to afford college otherwise. And so when I applied, I applied to any school whose financial aid program could cover my full 
uh, ride or had a full scholarship program because even not every university has that. So a lot of the state schools tend to have um, at least a couple of full ride scholarships that they offer, um, which are actually like even more competitive to get than getting into an Ivy League, mm-hmm. which a lot of people don't realize. Um, like getting a full ride to like, you know, SUNY Stony Brook or, you know, Delaware or something like that, that's actually like just as competitive, if not more competitive than getting into an Ivy League. So when I got into the like slate of schools that I got into, then I was able to just actually like, you know, take a chance and explore the campuses and see which ones fit my, you know, desires. Um, applications were never about like what I wanted. It was what it was about what I needed. And so then once I got in, I was able to pick which ones I wanted, but I also needed to pick one that was closer to home. So um, I had gone into Stanford and I really wanted to go, but my whole family, you know, uh, that would have been like the first person in my family to actually go like across the country or anything like that. So um, I just felt like at the time I wanted to stay a bit closer to home. You know, like I ended up going to Boston, which is about like a four hour drive, which was still something reasonable for my family since like I would have been the first person like leaving the nest fully. My oldest cousin had gone to college in upstate uh, New York. So it was mostly just a decision off of, okay, which is like the school that I think appeals to me the most that is still close enough that I can see my family for holidays and it's not too expensive to get back to during what if I would need to get back. So I read a Medium article that you wrote a couple of years mm-hmm. ago, which was titled, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. And the entire article was about the importance of rock bottoms and failures. Can you talk a little bit about that and your experience with that in yeah, college? Yeah, so uh, the title is lovingly titled after my favorite black and white film. Um, but I... Just to uh, go over the article a bit, I uh, came into school with this perfectionist mindset and mentality, as I'm assuming, I, I can't actually quote this, but I would say 90% of the students that walk into Harvard definitely have some kind of chip on their shoulder, some kind of imposter syndrome, some like I am, you know, a lot of ego, if you will, like a lot of I need to, mm-hmm. I've been the biggest fish in a small pond my whole life, and now I'm about to experience getting removed from that like I'm going to be in a very big pond with a lot of very big fish and I'm no longer going to be the biggest Mm -hmm. so I definitely experienced a bit of that um you know from day one I felt constantly intimidated that there was always someone smarter than me funnier than me more well-adjusted more social something and I feel like everyone kept trying to find something that they had that was theirs right like you know, maybe I'm not the smartest one, but I'm the most social one here. Or maybe I'm not the most social one, but I'm the most athletic one here. Um, and I very quickly figured out that if you keep playing your life in this comparison game, you're going to be absolutely miserable. Like, you're never going to be the most anything at that school. There's always going to be someone who's smarter, better at something than you. Um, and so I started understanding the importance of finding validation internally rather than externally. Um, And a lot of that came from, you know, learning to fail. Um, I felt like, you know, growing up as the daughter of a single immigrant, I being perfect was absolutely necessary to getting out. Like I had a scholarship to high school, like I got into Harvard on full financial aid. I definitely felt like failure was just not an option. 
Um, and so I put way too much pressure on myself to, you know, achieve um, academically, to achieve socially, to, uh, you know, just make the most out of the situation because it was a miracle that I was even there. And to put that much pressure on yourself is to guarantee that something is going to go wrong. Um, so yeah. when, you know, academically, like I wasn't doing as well as I should have my sophomore year, I remember uh, just like beating myself up that I got a bad grade in the class and I felt like a total failure. And it was really the first time it ever failed on my own merit. Like I was putting too much stress on myself. So I was like partying a lot, therefore like maybe not sitting as much as I should have. And therefore like trying to recompensate mm -hmm. for that during final season, which is like never going to work. <laughs> and Absolutely so not. there was just like <laughs> a lot of like classic, you know, 19 year old things happening, which looking back is just kind of funny to me now because I should have absolutely given myself more grace. Like, yeah, you can get a B in a class. It's not the biggest deal in the world, but because I like couldn't handle a B, I ended up getting a C <laughs> and sure. yeah. And yeah. so like, I find like the more that you like try to like just, you know, re like force perfection to happen, the more it's going to go south. Um, and so, right. yeah, like I came back, you know, I took the summer to reflect and figure out like, you know, what I could change because I knew that like the way things were going was just not going to work long term. Um, and so that summer I actually had an internship um, at a startup where I was a marketing intern. And, you know, I had gone through those two years of feeling like I wasn't the most anything you know, uh, I wasn't the, like, I definitely wasn't the smartest person in the room. I definitely wasn't like the most well-connected. I definitely wasn't the wealthiest. And being at the startup made me realize, oh, okay, but like, I am definitely the scrappiest. <laughs> I realized yeah. that like, there were a lot of other skill sets that have gotten me to where I am that just like, weren't necessarily talked about or appreciated in an academic context, but were in a professional one. And so just being uh, at this incubator, like realizing what my true skill sets were of like, I can code switch really well. I can be, you know, talking to international investors and then jump into talking to engineers and then jump into talking to like the cleaning staff in Spanish later that day. Understanding that like I can um, connect with people of all different walks of life. That in itself is a skill that not many people have. Um, I also learned that I was really good at figuring out how to get something out the door as quickly as possible and as with the least amount of money as possible, which in itself is a very important skill set for entrepreneurs because yeah. I can tell you for a fact, a lot of the entrepreneurs I've consulted for and like worked with definitely don't have that skill set. Um, <laughs> so I find that I really discovered that like a lot of what made me me was actually very valuable and i had been trying to like put myself in this box that i thought harvard had predefined as success but the more that i appreciated what i had to bring to the table on my own with my own merit uh the more i realized that like i did deserve to be there just as much as anyone else i just had different skills that i had been underappreciating because they weren't the ones that i thought were the ones that were to be appreciated and when i started appreciating them I realized that like right. everyone around me had always appreciated those things and had always thought that those things were going to be the things that made me successful. Um, I had just blinded myself to thinking that they weren't. Yeah, that sounds like a really formative experience just in, I mean, you know, that sophomore year, but then especially in that internship. So you majored in social studies and then 
was it a sec was it a dual major in computer science or was it just like a like it was a, minor? Like a minor yeah i picked up coding my junior year of college so i didn't have enough time to pack in all the classes to be a double major um again i was trying to like not overload myself as i had done my freshman right. and sophomore year um but yeah i learned how to code my junior fall and that was the first time I went in with this mentality of, yeah, just like you might be terrible at it and you might fail, but you should just try it. Um, and the first two months, like I was absolutely terrible. I had no idea what I was doing. I did not understand what a function was. <laughs> like none of that was clicking for me. And then, you know, by the end of the course, I was like writing my own apps. So I think that yeah. allowing myself to just, you know, admit that I needed help and admit that like I didn't understand something and just being really okay with saying I'm struggling right now can someone explain this to me that allowed me to move faster and again like we're talking about like removing the perfectionism like that I can't let others know that like I'm struggling or I'm failing um by doing that it actually made it way easier for me to succeed and I ended up getting like an A in that class and, you know, ended up moving into software engineering uh, right after college as a job. I was going to say, because you've worked in tech since graduating. Mm -hmm. So what was the moment when you realized uh, that it wasn't just something that you were interested in, that it wasn't just I'm interested in computer science, then realizing I'm good at computer science? And then what was the decision like to say, I think that this is what I want to do. I think I want to start working in this. So I think it was, so uh, that summer that I had interned as a marketing intern, it was at a tech startup. It was at a dating startup. Um, and I knew that I wanted to go into entrepreneurship, pro predominantly tech entrepreneurship, just because like that was what was, you know, like hot at the time. <laughs> it still is, I guess. Um, and it, I knew that at the end of that summer, I had... A, like enough understood about like how this startup game worked that knowing at least how engineering works and like knowing how like coding operates and like knowing how to talk to engineers was going to be important for me to be successful as a founder eventually. So the move into engineering was less of I love engineering and I love coding. It was more of this is going to be a very valuable skill set for me in the future which it's proven to be like I never walked into any of my engineering classes thinking I'm going to be the best engineer of all time or like I, like this is what I love I liked it and it was yeah. challenging and honestly it's fun like sitting there trying to figure out the puzzle pieces to like make it work that can be really fun but it's definitely not what really excites me um, I think that there's a lot of people where if you ask them to build out this like very complex piece of architecture, like that is what gets them going. That is what gets them up in the morning. Um, for me, it's okay, how do we solve this problem? And maybe I have to like actually technically build it, but like what is more exciting is solving the problem. Mm. Okay. So it's, it's less so about the actual, you know, job. It's about what is that job doing? What's the greater impact of the work that, that you're doing? Exactly. And let's go out of college into your first, your first full-time job out of college was at Tinder? Yeah. What was that like? Um, it was the best of times and the worst of times. Uh, I, how did you, how did you get started at Tinder? How did you find that job? Yeah. So my senior year, they have, um, a bunch of like, you know, recruiting fairs and everything like that. I had thought I was going to join a startup 
out of the Harvard Innovation Lab that I had worked with my whole senior year. Um, I was very attached to that company and the founder. Um, But when I graduated, I realized that she was going to push off raising money for quite a while. Um, And I knew that I just couldn't work for, I couldn't work for free. Like I couldn't work just for equity. It just like wasn't an option for me. So um, by the time that I knew that that wasn't going to be an option, a lot of the traditional like recruiting fairs had closed, um, but they still had postings on like the college websites and everything like that. And there were a lot of websites at the time where like you could, you had to apply to get into the recruiting pool and then you would just post a profile then companies would contact you. So I just did that. I just put my resume everywhere just to see what would hit. And I had a couple of offers like here and there, but when Tinder came through, um, I was probably most excited about them because one, it was based in Los Angeles, which I knew that I wanted an excuse to move to California, but I didn't want to live mm-hmm. in San Francisco, uh, which I know is a bit of a misnomer for tech. Um, I loved Los Angeles. Uh, I It's the most diverse city in America in terms of just ethnicities represented. I knew that I wanted to live somewhere where it was incredibly diverse, where you can interact with people of every walk of life all of the time, which when I had visited San Francisco, it just didn't feel that way. Um, And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there are neighborhoods that are that way. But when I was there for at least a couple of weekends in college, never felt that way. I felt like I think the big thing about engineers is and, you know, entrepreneurs is that they solve products that they can they solve for problems that they can see and build products for problems Mm. that they're actively witnessing um and Mm. when you can only witness the one percent you're only going to build products that benefit the one percent which is why we see so many of these companies that are like you know how to optimize making plans with other people by cross comparing calendars and letting you know like when a slot is available for both of you it's like okay uh, have you thought about solving the housing crisis with that brain? <laughs> and, you know, yeah. and this is like ironic coming from someone who worked at Tinder, which is like dating, really. But um, I think that now I work on problems that I are a lot more prominent and a lot more um, impactful in terms of social impact. But, yeah, I think that like making sure that I was actively putting myself in an environment where I was seeing what... I was reminding myself what the rest of the world looked like and like was exposing myself to people that were different than me. And, you know, in that, like I was like a first gen Latina at Harvard. I was always the inside out. Like I was always the one like looking in. I think that even in Los Angeles, like I actually felt more integrated into the community because it's so predominantly Latin. But even then, Mm -hmm. I was looking at it from the lens of someone who, you know, came from an Ivy League, who was working in tech, who had a lot of privilege at this point in her life. So I think that there was also like a bit of like outside looking in, but a reminder that it was looking in because I had accomplished, like I had like achieved this level of privilege that now is my responsibility to make sure that I didn't just let that, you know, run away. Like I didn't just like let that take over my life. Can you talk a little bit about, so your jobs at Tinder, you were a junior software engineer and a data engineer. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what the day-to-day of those jobs were like? Like, what were you actually working on, you know, every day? Yeah. So when I started at Tinder, I was put into a feature development team. So uh, you basically were broken out into teams. And on those teams, there were um, some backend engineers, some uh, iOS engineers, and some Android engineers. 
and a manager who was, you know, entrusted with building out specific features. So you would work with your manager to, you know, build out the feature within like two weeks, a very classic, like agile cycle. Um, and so, you know, my day to day was I would go into work. Um, I would, on Mondays, we would get a spec review on like, if it was like the beginning of a sprint, um, we would dive deep and see like what it was exactly that we were building. We would, you know, fight with the product manager to make sure that they cut some stuff out because there was always no way that we could fit all that in two weeks. Um, and then mm -hmm. after that, we would do a deep dive with the manager who would help us architect the whole thing. And so because, you know, my first couple of months I was so new, I was mostly just observing architecture meetings um, and observing how people would, you know, fight about what the best architecture was to build something. Um, but the more experience I got, the more that I was taking the reins on that. And like when features were assigned to me, I would be the one architecting the solution myself. Um, so then from there, like you code and, you know, you take a break for lunch. Maybe you have some interviews that day that like candidates are coming in. So you have to take time to interview them. Um, but mm -hmm. a lot of the time is just hands to keys. Uh, we would also do like weekly backend meetings to talk about like, what infrastructure issues like we needed to be aware about, what technical debt we needed to solve. But a lot of the time is just focusing on writing code and debugging it and collaborating with other engineers to make sure that it integrates well and that it works. And then working with QA to make sure that it actually works according to their standards. So I feel like every single person that will listen to this podcast has Tinder downloaded on their phone. <laughs> what <laughs> what project specifically were you working on in the app just so that people can feel a little a little added connection with your work yeah so my first project was um the original implementation of a spam filter um so we okay. built out like the infrastructure that exists today for spam um which is like i probably can't give too much of it away but uh, pretty much like how we were flagging bots and what we would do so that the spammers didn't catch up with what we were doing. So mm. the re so I'm going to say this because I know that a lot of people, especially men who are using uh, Tinder, they're going to be like, well, I still see bots. Like, yes, because <laughs> it's a very... <laughs> uh, the big thing about spam is that there is a lot of... It's a very like adversarial job and you need someone on it full time, which we were just the first iteration of it, building out the infrastructure okay. for how we were going to handle it. Um, what every time that like you figure out spam at a company, the spammers are going to get smarter and better and they're going to figure it out. And then like you have to, it's a back and forth. It's a constant conversation. The reason why uh, spam has been kind of bad at Tinder is like they just didn't have enough people on it. And now they're starting to really mm. build out the team to like put it behind, uh, you know, put the force behind what needs to be done to address it. Um, so like the team, like when I started was small, it was 80 people, which is, tiny for an app that has you know tens of millions if not hundreds of millions of users a day um yeah so we just like didn't have enough people working on spam and so right. when i say i was like the i was the first implementation of a lot of the spam stuff like i really mean it like i it was me and this other guy and we were like we should have way more people working on this than just us <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I worked on some of the spam stuff, so I know I'm going to get flack for that. Like, mm, is she that good at her job? Um, I worked on Tinder, like the Tinder group dating feature. So that was when you could like make groups and swipe on other groups. 
um, which I okay. think since has been deprecated since like the feet, the usage of it wasn't that high. Um, but when I started, it was like all the rage. <laughs> I've worked on Tinder Boost. So it's basically when you can like boost yourself, you pay money to be put at the top of everyone's card stack in your area so that like you get all the matches in like an hour. Um, mm -hmm. So that one was actually like the highest grossing revenue feature on the App Store for that year. Oh, really? Yeah. And so I was, that was when I had transitioned into data engineering and was what, uh, that was one of the data projects I worked on. I worked on a couple of, um, you know, A-B tests for bad behavior. So like how we can um, catch a lot of bad messages before they're sent, um, which were all A-B tests. Nothing ever went out the door when I was there. Um, I think they're still working on like how exactly they want to implement that feature. Um, and I also helped overhaul the whole data pipeline. So we brought, so I became a data engineer when they brought data engineering in-house. They hired um, a great data engineer by the name of Kate Yortzos to really take the lead on it. And she basically like rebuilt the whole infrastructure for how we were handling analytics and events and everything like that. So I, first of all, like there's not very many female engineering managers ever. So when I saw mm -hmm. that she came on board, I was like, okay, I'll transition to her team, see what's going on there. And um, that was right when I'd got my uh, move from like a junior engineer to like a senior, like um, I was technically still like a mid-level engineer, but I was like on the cusp of being promoted to senior. So I moved over to the data engineering team. And from there, I helped build out like all of our like analytics infrastructure, how we were handling data, like roll-ups, making sure cool. we were compliant with a lot of different regulations and so it's a lot of like less of the sexy stuff less of like actual feature mm -hmm. development that people see but a lot more of this is how we handle trillions of events a day so by the time that i left like we were moving terabytes of data like every day and wow. um figuring out pipelines that just didn't break and so like a lot of it is just scalability um so when we're talking like when we talk about like data events, like, like in the trillions, we were figuring out like how to ingest all of that data without like the systems breaking, without losing any of it. Like data loss is like not acceptable in data engineering. Like we need all analytics events. We need all of the events that are happening and there can't be any downtime. So a lot of the architecture was like, how do we handle that much scale with zero downtime? Like we said, this was your first full-time job out of college. What was your biggest takeaway just from, you know, working full time uh, after this after this job, after your time at Cinder? I think that for me, what I saw was that I really understood the value of effective communication um, okay. and effective management. Like I had had great managers and I had terrible managers like managers who were like just the worst <laughs> and um the can you really quick just define like what made a manager really great mm -hmm. and then what makes a manager not so great what i've seen from like great managers are managers that prioritize the growth of their people above the i guess like the amount of out Put, like I don't want to say output because like the like for a company the job of a manager is to make sure that the team is working to make sure that the team is mm -hmm. outputting as much as they possibly can 
But a lot of managers, and I think bad managers, think that that means that they have to like work their teams until they're in tears. <laughs> um, and uh, like, you know, it's all about like, I'll just do the job and do it as fast as possible. And I'm gonna put a lot of pressure on you, but I'm not gonna help you at all. And I think the best managers really prioritize the development of their people because they know that developing their people means that in the future, that people are gonna produce way more uh, long-term than they would um, if they were just, mm -hmm. you know, given a bunch of things, scrambled, tried to make it work, sent it out the door, and then never really learned the right way to do it. So I think that good managers right. tend to slow things down so that you can speed up. And good managers also tend to like fight for their teams um, and make sure that they protect their teams from a lot of like, you know, the BS that comes down from the, you know, like the executive team, their job is to just like make shit happen, right? Like they're like, okay, here are the numbers we need to hit. Here's what revenue we need to hit so that this company is profitable and successful. And like all of you have equity to go home to. Um, and by the time that trickles down to like, you know, uh, more like mid-level managers, some managers like never push back because they're like, well, executive says. And then like right. they have to do that. But like good managers will say, no, like we can not do, like we could like avoid that. That doesn't make sense. Like that's not actually gonna help anything or yeah, that sounds great. Like we'll do that. And they'll also, you know, advocate for more resources if needed. They'll advocate for more time if needed. They'll advocate for more mentorship. You know, they'll get you uh, in front of like speaking engagements or something like that. Like anything to help really build their people because they know that happy teams are more productive teams. Like when you build that social capital, right. that team is going to be way better at their jobs. And so I've been like really lucky to find managers there that like did do those things and were really great. But I also had managers who were not so good <laughs> and didn't do those things. Really quick, and this, is the, this will probably be just the last question on this, but do you have any kind of general tips, advice, anything that you have found that works best or doesn't work as well with dealing managers that you might not get along with or with dealing with managers that maybe have a little bit more of a closed off perspective, people that are purely focused on overall, you know, production and not looking at work as a holistic thing of the individual and everything that that person brings into the office in addition to their, you know, work output. Yeah. Well, managing up is a critical skill that you have to learn as a, an individual as well. So there's like managing down and managing like parallel like your peers but managing up is very critical and a lot of again people tend to overlook that as a skill that's important i think it's you know when i mentor uh young professionals that is like the number one thing i tell them like like learning to manage up is the most important skill that you'll learn being in a corporate workplace and by that i mean a lot of managers are just as scared just as nervous and just as clueless as you are uh, like they like a lot of them just got thrown into these positions and like never really got training and never really got the you know the mentorship that they needed to be productive at these jobs in the same way that they're not giving you the same mentorship that you need to really succeed and be set up for success um so just like opening a very honest and transparent line of communication with managers is the best thing you can do so your managers should be doing one-on-ones if they're not that's a massive red flag um, and you should tell your manager to be doing one-on-ones. Um, and from there, uh, just make sure like you're constantly asking for feedback and say, I want feedback. Like I want to know what I could be doing better and I want to know what I should be continue doing. 
Um, and then from there, you should say, may I offer you feedback if they haven't already asked for it. A good manager will consistently ask you for feedback on how good of a job you're like they're doing. Um, but if they haven't asked, you should ask if you can offer it and they will hopefully say yes. And in which case you should say, hey, listen, like I think that, you know, the culture of the team may not be conducive to creating a productive work environment because like we're getting overworked. I think what would be more productive is this. Have you thought of that? Um, there are also like a lot of books that you can read on negotiation that really help with this. Never Split the Difference is a really great one. Um, so learning how to can not necessarily convince people of things, but how to advocate for yourself more productively is a very important life skill. Um, and from there, hopefully that like you might have to bring it up more than once. You might have to talk about it more than once. Just don't give up on it. But if you feel like you're really being met with resistance and there's a wall, my the best thing you can do after that is just move teams. Because at some point, like the manager's job is to make a productive team. And if they're losing talent, that's a very clear indication that they're not doing a good job. And you have to protect your own sanity and your own mental health and your own career by moving right. to a manager or a team or a company that like really does prioritize your growth and really does prioritize like your success. Um, so my advice would be talk about it. If nothing changes, then just move because there is going to be a time where like your manager's manager is going to realize that everyone has left that person's team and that's going to be a massive red flag. So like if your manager yeah. can't retain talent, that's their problem. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a great tip. And I feel like people, especially when you're in like your first couple jobs are really scared of, I mean, standing up just first and foremost to anyone that might be above you or outranks you. And then number two, not even just, you know, standing up for yourself, but then offering any, feedback on their performance but the core of everything that you've said just seems like everyone on the team regardless of where you're at you know on the ladder you need to be actively seeking constructive criticism and you need to actively be seeking feedback from everyone that you're working with because that's Typically, when people start to get into their silos of, you know, I'm doing something a certain way, then the behavior gets fixed. And then from there, you know, someone could have a, a career that goes for 25 years. And because no one has ever felt comfortable talking to them about something, you know, what could have been very easily avoidable in the first, you know, month of them doing that thing has now become, you know, a staple of the way that they operate. Yeah. Like I have a friend who uh, was venting about a co like, you know, a peer, another peer manager. They're both managers. And just like how difficult it's been to work with this person and how they just don't listen and how defensive they get. And I go, have you ever have you talked to them about it? And they go, well, no, but like I can't be the only person that feels this way. And I go, but you might be the only person with the courage to tell them like and right. if you are like they might have just never heard that feedback before and if they haven't like how can we expect people to be like growing like i think that there's a certain amount of self-awareness that's like necessary to be you know human in the world but not everyone is going to be self-aware about everything and you should cut people the benefit of the doubt that they might just have never heard that feedback before and sometimes that difficult feedback is necessary for their growth and your team is not going to succeed if you people aren't hearing the honest truth. And, you know, then there's the whole like, well, like, is it my responsibility? Like, 
it's only your responsibility if you want a team to succeed. And if you want it to succeed, then it's your job to sell them. That's great. I think that's really important uh, just for everyone to hear. Okay, so now let's go into jobs post-Tinder. So after Tinder, you were the co-founder and CTO at Driftwood. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, I had left Tinder with the ambitions to start my own company. Uh, It actually didn't work out, but that's okay. Um, So it was a startup that originally the intention was to connect, you know, millennial and Gen Z travelers to conscientious travel recommendations. So think like a conscientious trip advisor. So all of the recommendations there would have been vetted um, as something that's like either environmentally beneficial um, or, you know, a community uplifting recommendation. So by that, I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, travel is a multi-trillion dollar industry. And you would think that that means that like the developing nations that are getting traveled to like Thailand, Guatemala, Colombia, uh, would actually experience the benefits of all of that tourism, which theoretically it would. I mean, these like when you go to these areas, you see locals and like these are locals who are like Mm -hmm. serving you. These are locals who are working like the surf stands like these are locals that like are living there and working there but all of these companies for the most part are american or european owned so everyone who's benefiting from this are not the locals and in fact they're getting screwed over because uh the rising costs of like those areas are displacing them from their homes like these companies aren't really caring about like the environmental impact uh that they have so a lot of you know especially like in well, I don't want to say especially anywhere, everywhere. Like we're seeing like an increase in like just toxic waste into these like uh, natural water resources that people use to actually bathe and drink. And like we're seeing like increased infections, um, like overall the quality of life for people in these areas is decreasing because of the increase of tourism. So I love traveling. I think it's one of the best things you can do to actively like become a more empathetic person and understand how other people like live and like understand how what exactly you know how the rest of the world thinks and like it's an eye-opening experience for you and it's a great experience for fun like it's a fun thing to do but Mm -hmm. i hate feeling like i'm negatively impacting any community i visit so we really i i've always traveled very conscientiously like i've always like made an effort to research okay so i'm going to cuba like where in havana can i like can i stay like casalinda instead of staying at a hotel can i stay at like uh like can we eat at like locally owned restaurants which like aren't technically a thing but like you can eat at people's houses and like they're allowed to cook for you and like have like a little like side restaurant with their house Um, Mm -hmm. So it's just like little things like that where how can I make sure that my money is benefiting the community and actively going to people that like live in these areas instead of like going to the governments or like the corporations. So like money is actually getting distributed where it needs to be. So the more I vented this to a good friend of mine, he was like, I think that's a valid company idea. So we started doing that and we got some traction with it. However, to get like the kind of engagement numbers that we, like venture capitalists want to see to like actually invest, travel is just going to be very difficult because people don't travel all the time. So that's why like we see a lot of travel companies fail and like not necessarily make it to like the next round because like they don't have those engagement numbers. So we tried to pivot to make it more um, instead of being like a socially conscious trip advisor. What if we just made a socially conscious Yelp? where you could find these conscientious uh, recommendations in your own community. So like the idea would be to integrate 
scores of environmental and community impact just as much as you integrate like price point or location or you know distance from you when you're making a choice to go eat or go to a bar or something um Mm -hmm. it is something that i'm still passionate about and it's still something that i'm like very actively doing in my own time but uh we did have to call it quits because of a couple of personal issues that came up i.e my apartment burned down and my co-founder and i were living together and we're like we should probably get jobs to be able to get new stuff because we don't have an income right now yeah no that'll definitely put a halt to things can you talk a little bit about the process? I know you talked, you know, if it was going to be like a trip advisor, that the the numbers that would have been needed to interest venture capitalists weren't or would be very difficult to attain. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk a little bit about like what does that process look like once you're trying to start your own app company, you know, in that tech startup space? What does that look like? Yeah, so it's it's difficult because the process is a bit different for everyone. So um, it depends okay. on like what kind of round you're trying to raise. So there's the option of doing like a friends and family round where your friends and family, you know, give you checks and like you can just move forward with that money. Um, if you're trying to raise like a formal like pre-seed round or a formal like seed round with either an angel investor or venture capitalist, they normally um, with angel rounds, since like there's no traction, yet, like there's no revenue. They're just going off of pitch, like vision for the idea and like whether or not they actually think that this could succeed. Um, and they tend to invest a lot in the founders themselves. So for we were like in the process of looking for angel investment when the fire happened and we <laughs> made the decision to mm. probably just hold off on starting a company at that time in our lives. Um, but we had... Yeah, so angel investment is just about like getting the connections and the introductions to angel investors, which in itself is very difficult because it's very um, dependent on your network. So again, Mm -hmm. for me, like I came from a school where there is a very thorough network in angel investors. So it was easier for me to get those introductions and it would be from someone who didn't come from that background, which is why networking when you're trying to start a company is incredibly important. So whether that's like, you know, so much of this of entrepreneurship is like keeping your connections hot. So are you actively checking in on all your friends? Like, because if there's someone that you haven't talked to in like three years and you're going to ask them for an introduction to an angel investor, it's going to be a lot harder. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. unless it's someone that you like caught up with like a couple months ago and you can always just say, hey, I mm-hmm. saw that you know this person. Can you do that intro? Um, so yeah, like, find angel investors in your area that have invested in companies in the similar vein or like you know that they would want to invest in a company like that is in your industry figure out how to connect with them like what levels of separation do you have from them uh are there any networking events that they go to often so that they can meet founders um are there any scouts in the area that like are actively looking for founders like you know venture scouts are always on linkedin and they're always reaching out to you if you have something on your like profile and like make sure that your linkedin messages are on and make sure your linkedin is up to date um and so then if you're going to like a more formal like seed round where you're like actually reaching out to venture capitalists or like bigger names um the you have to have Oh man, you have to have numbers. Like you have to have real numbers mm-hmm. that prove engagement. Like you have to have a product set up. Like they're like yeah. you like the product needs to be built. Like you need to prove that you have product market fit 
and that um, you have stickiness, like engagement is there. Um, you need to prove that like your cat, like your burn rate to revenue rate is like manageable. It's not something like for every million dollars you're spending, you have $1 coming in, um, which is yeah. where like the scrappiness really comes in. Like how can you decrease the amount of money you're spending? Like every $5,000 counts. And like mm -hmm. an example of like my current company, like we're like, okay, so like this thing that we need to do, theoretically, we've budgeted 20K for it. How can I get it down to 5K? How can I get it to cost 5K? Um, and so like, I've, like literally every dollar counts. So um, it's, it's just like a lot of, it's more of a numbers game at that point, because when you're talking about a seed round, those, the numbers that would be coming in for your startup are a lot bigger. Like we're talking like in the millions range. So for that for someone to be able to hand over that much money, they would need to see a lot more. Like they would need to see a lot more proof that this is like an actual right. valid company before they sign over that money. Because at that point, like these firms are representing other investors. Like it's not even just like, right. oh, I'm an, a, you know, an eccentric billionaire and I can like hand you a small check. Like these are people who are like, no, my yeah. job depends on this, that this company works. It's not Shark Tank. It's like the actual industry of, of this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So let's just really quickly then go into that next job that you had after Driftwood, which was, is it Tala? Yeah. And there you were a product, you did product impact and insights. Can you talk a little bit about what that job was? Yeah. So after the fire situation happened that I told you about, I went to, um, I tried to find a startup in the area that I still felt was social impact related, um, but would also, again, was far enough along they could pay me the salary I needed to like get back on my feet after a fire. So um, I went to a startup called Tala, which does micro lending and developing nations. So um, I definitely enjoyed uh, my time there. I met a lot of great people and I think that the founder is really intelligent and very altruistic and is definitely uh, like the, the mission of the company was just so revolutionary. Um, I thought it was, it's just awesome. Um, I worked there very briefly on their product impact and insights team. I, I think that my claim to fame there was at the behavioral messaging test. So I, realized that like we had text message reminders for uh, users to repay their loans on time and those tech like those actual text messages had never been updated in copy so i my one of my struggles there was i just felt like there weren't enough you know just classic startup issue like there wasn't enough resources especially engineering resources to start doing some of the mvp testing for features that i wanted to put out to see like you know, is this like, what is the impact of a feature like this or something like this? Um, but changing the copy of a text message that took no engineering resources at all. That's just updating the copy. So yeah. I did a, like a test on to see what exactly, uh, what copy changes would actually lead to like higher repayment rates. So I tested copy with a bunch of different triggers. So. Uh, by that, I mean, we like the copy used to just say, oh, your Tala loan is due. Pay it, please. Thanks. Link. <laughs> and um, so mm -hmm. I tested herd mentality, which is something along the lines of 75% of your peers have repaid their Tala loan on time. Do you want to join them? Link. 
uh, positive impact. So it's like, if you repay your towel loan on time, you'll get a higher limit next time. Repay it, blink. Uh, negative impact, which is like, if you don't repay your towel loan on time, you'll have to pay a fee. Pay it, <laughs> link. And then um, the fourth was, I think, altruism. I can't remember what the fourth trigger was, to be quite honest. But um, it was, I just tried a bunch of like different behavioral incentives to see what worked. Um, and we actually saw that at different life cycles of the like the loan, so uh, different triggers worked best. So hmm. we saw that herd mentality worked best right before the actual loan was due. We saw that like positive impact w worked best right before the fee was applied, which is like seven days past due. And then we saw that negative impact, like you're going to get blacklisted from ever like being able to get a loan from Tala again was the most impactful right before like the, you know, 30 days, 60 days past due before we had to blacklist them. Right. So um, with that, with like just changing the copy of those text messages at different times, um, we ended up like increasing total portfolio by like 3%. 3% sounds small, but I feel like that means a lot more than just 3%. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, especially just given the different like motivational styles at different points, I would have figured that it would have been, my thought was that it would have just been one of those things that would have been the most influential, you know, throughout the entire thing. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now let's talk about Bias Sync, where you were a senior product manager and a director of product and engineering. So this was still a startup, correct? Yeah. But it was also more of a social enterprise at the same time. So this is getting back to kind of at the beginning, talking about not just, you know, falling in love with doing the work, but falling in love with what that work can actually mean. So can you talk a little bit about what you were doing at, at Biasync? Yeah. So I actually wasn't at Tala too long before uh, a mentor of mine poached me away for Biasync as the first hire there. So I, oh, wow. uh, yeah, I was employee number one. Um, the company is a unconscious, it's a conscious management system for unconscious bias. So by that, I mean, it is a thorough unconscious bias training system for employees, whereas on the company side, it actually measures unconscious bias by, you know, department, by division, et cetera, and gives them actionable insights into how to address unconscious bias at their company. So I came in as hire one to just help build out like the whole system. So the idea was that I was going to be somewhere in between an engineer and a product manager. Um, just because, again, startups, you don't really just have one title or one job. Um, and yeah. so I, you know, hired my own team. We built it out. Um, when we launched, we uh, ended up launching with a couple of, like, Fortune 500s. Um, we, I went from just being, like, a classic, like, engineer that, like, also did some product to end up transitioning into full-time management. So... I was still doing two jobs, which is like engineering managing and product managing, um, which was too much work for one person for sure. But it was just where the startup was at the time that like they needed one person to do both. This might be a really dumb question, but like what are the key differences between like engineering management and product management? Um, so engineering managing is actually managing the engineers themselves. So you okay. get the solution, like you're like, okay, so we have to build this thing how do we build it how do we architect it like what goes where um making sure that 
the engineers themselves, as I said before, were happy, um, like mm-hmm. feeling fulfilled, feeling like they're um, were taking into account the professional development, uh, making sure that you're adjusting for like the timelines that are given by product aren't like too ambitious, uh, making sure that you're accounting for enough time for things like refactoring or testing or anything like that. So a lot of it's just like managing the team from an engineering perspective. For product management, you're managing the product. So you're figuring out like in a market, like market strategy wise, like what needs to be done? What new features can we add that either increase engagement um, or if you're at a different stage of the company, like, you know, optimize for profit, for lifetime value of a customer, what uh, you're, it's a very metrics driven role where you need to figure out like where the company is right now and what is the next step that you need to get to is and what steps you can take to get there. So what features can we add that will make users return more frequently? What features can we add so that like we can like upsell this to users in the future? Um, How can we make this product just like more usable for everyone? And then prioritizing those features because you know, you can't prioritize everything. You have to have some kind of analytical way of doing it. Um, and yeah, just making sure the team has what they need to get these things out the door. So, um, yeah, it was a lot of both, which is a little counterintuitive. That's a lot. Yeah. Well, it's it's also very counterintuitive because like product managers, like notoriously are like, this is what we're building and we need to get out the door fast. And the EMs are the ones being like, okay, like let's slow down and figure out how to do that productively. So, um, I think I was like contradicting myself constantly where I was like fast, but also maybe slower. Yeah. Cause you've got to wear the, the two hats that are opposing each other at the same time. That's okay. So then you just started a new job at, is it Pando? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and the work that you're doing there? Mm-hmm. So I'm currently head of product at Pando. So moving up in the world, <laughs> from director to head, which I guess is like in startups, there is like, we don't have enough people to really schism people by VP or director or anything Mm -hmm. like that. So head is just like head of the department. Um, And I, Pando is a platform that, um, it's a B2B SaaS solution for performance management. The idea right now is that um, one of the biggest drivers of bias at companies is a lack of structured review system, like lack of structured reviews or lack of structured performance management. Um, there right now, like a lot of companies kind of just promote people when managers feel like promoting someone and raises happen when employees come in and they're like, well, I got another offer, so you better match it. And there, like that lack of structure actually leads to a lot of differences in pay. Um, it leads to a lot of people getting promoted that like, it's not about deserving as much as it's, you're overlooking a lot of really great mm-hmm. talent that's um, going to leave and go somewhere where they feel appreciated and respected. And uh, like, you know, unhappy employees, like I think something like 70% of employees that leave their jobs cite like that, like the fact that they didn't grow or like the fact that like they were underappreciated compensation wise or title wise is like the reason they're leaving. So this is like a massive problem that's everywhere, but like in tech, it's happening like wildfire. And there's such high turnover that to replace someone is like really ridiculously expensive. So companies are spending like, you know, 
million they're losing millions of dollars a year just because like their people aren't being appreciated or happy and they're not being like productively managed so my founder felt that frustration herself at prior companies where she felt like you know being a woman in tech like she definitely got overlooked like men would get promoted over her and there's like obvious bias that was happening when she was one hitting like kpis way higher and better but wasn't getting even looked at for certain roles and so she was like, there has to be a better way to do this, like structurally, so that we do, can't, we don't have to wait until the world becomes less biased right. before, like, women and people of color can get uh, equally thought of for promotions. So, enter Pando, which is going to be like an entirely automated system of helping companies level and handle performance management. So, uh, the content itself uh, helps create ladders and structure for these departments and these roles and creates a very like transparent ladder for the employee to say here's what you need to do to get to the next round and then the next level and then the next level and then um, ties back like active feedback into it so uh, managers are expected to give active feedback to um, their users like their uh, reports like through this product and you can track like, all the to-dos, all the achievements, et cetera. So again, the idea is to like eliminate traditional performance management and replace it with something that's highly structured, highly analytical, and real time. Um, just because, again, like if you have to wait a year before getting your next performance review, when like you know three months after the last one you technically hit a new level, are you really going to stick around for yeah. 10 months getting paid the same amount when like you could be getting paid more somewhere else? So from here, like employees are going to be able to request all of these reviews ad hoc. Whenever they're ready to hit the next level, they'll be able to request it and, um, you know, get pr promoted to the next round whenever they're ready. And removing like the traditional system of performance management will actually make these uh, managers a lot more effective at their jobs. This is, this is a super cool idea. I think this is awesome. Um, another thing that I have been thinking about is I've just been wondering, when did you start to think that you wanted to, you know, spend your time and spend your work life focused on bias? Because obviously you could be working on a number of things. You could be working at, you know, a variety of different companies, industries, startups. So what is it about bias has it been something that you've always been interested in is it been something that due to personal experience you've you know wanted to work in this or has it been since starting in the tech industry and like you just touched on given that it's so heavily uh, male dominated um has that also influenced you wanting to spend your time in in this area yeah what's well, twofold well from a personal experience like yes biases. 1000% affected my life. Um, and I, you know, I'm a woman and I'm a woman of color in tech. Like it has like, especially like in the first couple of years, like I remember just going through stuff where I was like, I can't tell if that was bias or like, I just, you know, mm -hmm. I try to give people the benefit of the doubt, especially cause like I myself had a lot of imposter syndrome. And I think that like, I allowed that to gaslight me in a lot of ways. And I, myself had you know like the whole anything from like as like microaggression to like men telling me to calm down in meetings and me being left out of meetings mm -hmm. because they thought i was going to get too passionate or something like that like what what does that even mean she's getting too passionate in meetings care too much yeah she's too fiery or whatever like, okay 
screw you. Um, and to as serious as like, why aren't like my friend is not getting paid the same amount as like like all the guys that are at her level are getting paid. What is what is going on here? Or, um, you know, men taking a lot of credit for my work. Like that happens a lot. Like that still happens sometimes. Like it doesn't happen in my current company because it's about bias. Um, and I'm also the only product <laughs> person. But like I like it hap- like it happens so often. It's ridiculous that I think that I am just very I personally have like gotten really passionate about just talking about it and like learning how to communicate about it has been really important for like my own mental health. Um, I now feel very confident in calling out situations in which I see bias and I'm very comfortable being told that I'm being biased. And I think that like a lot of being able to address these issues is just having these productive conversations and like informing people like I will let you know when I personally feel like there is a bias situation and like I don't say it often. So when I do, you know, it's the truth. But I also want you to absolutely tell me if you feel like I'm being biased. And I think that like for myself, I've mm-hmm. one strategy, for example, is like I definitely have been biased about like, you know, colleges on resumes. Like I was definitely and earlier in my career swayed when I saw an Ivy League or like what is considered like a more top tier school on resumes. I would m- like be much more likely to contact those people or just even going to college, which like a lot of engineers didn't go to college. Um, and so when I was, you know, given that feedback about myself, I was like, you know what, let's just remove colleges from resumes when we like go through resumes. So now when we scrubbed resumes at Biosync, we didn't just remove the name and any gender affiliation. We also removed colleges, um, just so that it was for myself, like it allowed me to actually assess the candidate on actual experience rather than just like. Mm -hmm university (laughs) which was definitely something that like i didn't realize was swaying my opinion but it did um so again just like for me like in terms of my career and my experience like it's been really important just to be able to like destigmatize bias and have productive conversations about it um so that this work is very important to me in that way but from a more like macro perspective i do think that so many problems in society could be avoided if the people making decisions, like the rooms in which people make decisions were more diverse. <laughs> and mm-hmm. like just a couple of examples, did you know that like car seatbelts um, are like not nearly as productive for women as they are for men? Like, I, I no, I've never heard that. Like thirty percent women, like more women die in car accidents, or forty percent more die in car accidents because the seatbelts don't work for them. They're not designed to handle female bodies. That's a that's a big chunk. That's a big chunk. And so, what if more women had been in the room when people were designing seatbelts? Like, yeah, <laughs> like, that would have been accounted for. And so, you know, it's just stuff like that. Where like, it's not even just about like being PC or having PC culture. Like, it's about life and death. Like, another example: uh, lending algorithms lend like significantly less to Black and Latin families. Significantly less, like t- like to a very obvious degree. And what if people of color had been in the room when we're making those decisions about the algorithm themselves? Like when we're talking about like like. A lot of people think that because things are automated, no bias is in them. Because things are automated, more bias gets perpetuated through them. Because like tech and algorithms perpetuate the biases that the builders have. 
which I'm not saying we're going to like totally get rid of bias in people, but by making the rooms, like at least not yet, not overnight, mm-hmm. but by making these rooms more diverse, we'll be able to catch each other and like have these productive conversations where like when these, you know, engineers and data scientists are figuring out the factors that actually like contribute to someone who is like worthy of being lent to, they like if there were more black and brown people in the room, they could have said, hey, that actually doesn't necessarily work for black people or brown like or like Latin people because that mm-hmm. like because of these reasons, maybe we should find something else. And I think that's one of the reasons why Talo is so brilliant was because it developed a credit score off of smartphone data. It didn't account for like traditional methods of creating um, credit scores because they knew that like those methods wouldn't work in creating credit scores for people in Eastern Africa. And so if you took that mind that like where Shivani came at it from a very like, like a, you know, worldly perspective of this doesn't work for everyone. So I'm going to create a solution that works for a different group of people. Again, like these lending algorithms, like they're not, they don't work for everyone. They only work for the people that built them. So you need to have people in the room who are not like those people so that like they work for more people. And I think that like another life or death uh, situation is facial recognition algorithms. Um, Mm -hmm. The people who like facial, uh, facial recognition algorithms like are like 95 to 99% accurate for white Caucasian faces but are like 10% accurate for like black and indigenous faces. And like, I think like 15 to 20% for Asian faces, at least in America, like for obvious reasons, the facial recognition algorithms in China are very productive for Asian faces, but like here in America, they're not. And so like, that's because like who was in the room creating like the actual uh, metrics for like how you were going to measure similar faces. And like, are what kind of cameras were you using? Are they cameras that actually capture like features that are not just on pale skin? And so like, it's fascinating how like, okay, like if we had just had more people of color in the room when like these algorithms were being built, I wonder how much more accurate they would have been because people have been arrested because yeah. of these algorithms. Like people have gone to jail because of facial recognition algorithms. And we don't acknowledge the fact that like not having diversity in these rooms is absolutely detrimental to continuously oppressing different demographics. And it's just so crazy, too, because, you know, you're talking about the facial recognition technology. You're talking about seatbelts, things that are, you know, costing people their lives. And literally the baseline is just put different people in the room. Like that, like that's realistically the like the first step is just open the door, like, yeah. which is it's infuriatingly simple, I think. Yeah, right? I agree. For anyone interested in getting started in the world of startups, is there anything that you think that everyone should know? I guess like first things first, um, a lot of people tend to start a company just because they can or because they want like they want to start a company um money and recognition are not going to be enough of a driver to keep you in this game like and when i say by that i mean i've been in startups like i've taken massive pay cuts for equity some of time like when with tinder it worked out very well (laughs) but like 
with other startups like i don't know if i'm ever gonna see that money mm-hmm. and like that was a massive pay difference from like what i was getting paid there than what i could have get be what i could have gotten paid at google or facebook um and so when you're working those hours when you're working with that pressure and like saying that you're doing it for like the thought of money or like the thought of recognition especially as a founder where like you're putting in founder hours it's not going to get you to where you need to be it's like not going to be the the light at the end of the tunnel that drives you like the mission has to be the thing that drives you and not everyone is going to be like mission driven in the same way that i am of like oh like you know right now bias is like what i'm really passionate about that's like bias like that's what's going to get me up in the morning um, but for other people, it can be anything yeah. like creating a lending algorithm that actually works for everyone. Like it has to be a vision and there has to be a mission that like you keep going back to that reminds you why you're doing it. Because otherwise, like you're never going to make it. It's it's a it's a marathon. It is a long and grueling marathon. And I do not glorify it. I do not like it's it's hard. So do it if like you have a mission you're really passionate about. Don't do it just because it's like the hot thing to do. You're going to be a very unhappy person. <laughs> you're best you're better off like getting a cushy job until you figure out what you want to do, which like, you know, my co-founder did that too. He like ended up going to Facebook for a while. Um and he's had like a much cushier like he jokes he's like, "Yeah, I feel like I've had a much cushier life than you've had since <laughs> the startup where you just keep coming back for more." And I was like, "Yeah, you know, hopefully one of them pays off, but like we'll see." Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but that's number one. Number two, like actually work-life balance really matters. Like, again, you will be working more hours at a big company, like at a startup than you would be at a normal company, but you still have to make time for yourself in your life because at the end of the day, like this is like a job is a job, even if it is your company. Um, you have to take time to see your friends. Like you have to make time for your health to work out. to eat well like because you know four years down the road like you might have gotten a hundred million dollar valuation on the company that you made but your health is shit and you're not gonna like survive to see it become a billion dollar company so i've also seen a lot of that like a lot of people who just complete their mental health tanks like their health tanks like everything tanks and like i really really encourage people to make sure that you're making time for yourself and like by that i mean like there are some days where like i'll start work at 8 a.m because i have to be on calls with clients that are like you know in mexico or europe so like i'm on starting at seven or eight but a lot of days like i don't start working until 10 because i take that morning to work out or do yoga or something and like you really just have to like it's all about flexibility but finding a schedule that works for you and communicating that to the rest of the team and i've felt really lucky in my current company, most of the engineers are parents. Like, they're like, yo, do not contact me past 6 p.m. Like, cause I got a kid and we're doing dinner and like, I'll respond right. to you at like 10 p.m. if necessary, but like <laughs> during this chunk of time, I'm not responding. Um, and so I felt really lucky that like, I work with people who really value that balance because they have to, like when you have a family, like you, you have to, va- you have to value it. So that's mm-hmm. also been very positive, a positive experience for me mm-hmm. at my current company. And at Biasync, like not everyone was a parent, uh, especially not on the engineering team, but there were a lot of parents. And so I really like that was the first time I saw the value of it there too. Like the value of working with people who have kids 
And now at Panda, like, I really appreciate it because I don't have kids. I don't yet. I eventually will. But, like, even just being able to say, like, 4 p.m., it's time to walk my dog for half an hour. I take that time and I put my phone away and I don't respond to messages when I'm on my walk with my dog. Like, you have to draw boundaries for yourself, even if they're as little as I don't respond to messages during this half an hour. I th- yeah, I think that's honestly really great advice for anyone starting in anything, just because I've also seen that there are certain jobs that just will expect you to be operating kind of all the time. And when you don't set up that kind of separation, you you will burn out. Like, it will happen. And then there's a good chance that you could end up disliking the work or disliking the job for reasons that you know you otherwise wouldn't have so you know it it chops down any longevity and you know in these opportunities okay so final four questions and then we will be done i have taken so much of your time i am so sorry but i really appreciate it so uh favorite job you've ever had uh camp counselor okay in high school awesome um, work-wise, who is your biggest role model? It's funny because it's someone who acts absolutely does not, is not in my industry at all, but probably a model Clooney. What's your dream job? Spy. <laughs> We're still going to do it. Okay, I love that. <laughs> yeah. um, and then what is one thing that you would like to accomplish uh, professionally within the next year? I have a startup idea that I'm working on on the side. Okay. Um, and I would like to get that off the ground. Oh, awesome. Well, uh, everyone that listens will be pulling for you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I think it was a super helpful conversation. Thank you so much for being here. All right. Sounds good. Thank you, Michael. Welcome to the follow-up. So before I dive into my biggest takeaways from that conversation, I wanted to define and provide some backing to some things that were said. Linda was talking about fundraising for her startup. She talked about angel round, angel investors, and seed rounds. An angel investor is an individual who provides capital for a business startup, usually in exchange for convertible debt or ownership equity. Angel investors usually give support to startups at the initial moments and when most investors are not prepared to back them. Thus, an angel round is when you are courting those investors and hopefully getting money from them. A seed round refers to a series of related investments in which 15 or less investors seed a new company with anywhere from 50000 to $2 million. This money is often used to support initial market research and early product development. Investors are typically rewarded with convertible notes, equity, or a preferred stock option in exchange for their investment. Seed rounds are meant to supply startups with the capital they need to build the kind of foundation that yields a profitable business. Seed round funding is typically used for things like hiring instrumental team members, market testing ideas, and further developing MVPs. Linda also spoke about how seatbelts are more protective for men than women in car crashes. Well, in a study done by researcher Jason Foreman and his team from the University of Virginia in 2019, 
they found that women wearing seatbelts are 73% more likely to be injured in a front-end car crash, the most common, than similarly belted men. This was found after analyzing more than 22,000 front-end car crashes between 1998 and 2015. We also discussed accuracy issues with facial recognition software and the racial discrepancies. A growing body of research exposes divergent error rates across demographic groups with the poorest accuracy consistently found in subjects who are female, black, and 18 to 30 years old. In the landmark 2018 Gender Shades Project, an intersectional approach was applied to appraise three gender classification algorithms, including those developed by IBM and Microsoft. Subjects were grouped into four categories, darker-skinned females, darker-skinned males, lighter-skinned females, and lighter-skinned males. All three algorithms performed the worst on darker-skinned females, with error rates up to 34% higher than for lighter-skinned males. I will also note that in general, the facial recognition technology was more accurate for men than for women. So we spoke about so much in our conversation, but I think what stuck out the most to me was the importance for taking time for yourself, whether that be self-care, figuring out how to talk to managers about what you need, or just processing your own feelings on things that come up at work Everything leads back to making the conscious decision to taking a step back and realizing what you need in order to be your best. I think this really hit me hardest in my last job, where I was managing two statehouse campaigns remotely in the latter half of last year. I was basically working two full-time jobs at the same time, and I was also doing that from three states away. And for the first few months, I was mentally a wreck. I didn't know what I was doing. I was incredibly stressed because I felt like I should have been doing a lot more than what I was. And honestly, I was just completely lost. Add on top of all of that, that the reason we were remote was because of a once in a lifetime pandemic. And then towards the end of those first couple months, I was going through a really disappointing breakup. One of my friends from college had passed away. And it just got really rough. So, honestly, the one thing that I credit most for me being able to finish out that job and maintain any semblance of balance was one of my bosses who told me to take all the time I needed in order to mentally and emotionally get to a place that I could be okay again. So I had been really into taking walks earlier in the pandemic, and I got back into that so that I could always dedicate some time to thinking and processing my day. I started going to therapy, and... Over time, I started to realize that if I was not personally doing okay, then my work would absolutely suffer, and I was working a job that I cared a ton about, so it really became a necessity for me to prioritize genuine self-care. I obviously don't know a lot about most things, but one thing that is starting to become pretty clear from the interviews I've done and all the interviews I listen to is that 
it is essential to figure out what you need in order to operate at your best and then to be uncompromising in making sure that you follow through and that it happens. And yes, I know that there are times where that isn't possible. If you're working on a campaign, the final month leading up to that election, you're probably working 24-7. If you're an accountant, come tax season, you will absolutely be putting in 70-hour work weeks at least, no question. But in order to have those moments where you can throw yourself 1,000% into something, you need to have been taking care of yourself and making all aspects of your health a top priority because otherwise you won't be able to do the things that you know you can. Now, I'd like to thank our sponsors. Thank you to the Crystal Casino Band for letting us use their amazing song, Luck, as music for the show. If you like that song, go check them out on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to music. They also just released their new music video for their song Bad Luck, which just recently debuted on YouTube a couple days ago, and it is amazing, so I highly suggest you go check them out. I would also like to plug the book Think Again by Adam Grant. Uh, this might be the first time I've spoken about Adam Grant on the show, which is honestly surprising to me given that he is one of the main inspirations for me starting this podcast. But Think Again is a book that I truly feel should be required reading for every single person everywhere. With bold ideas and rigorous evidence, this book investigates how we can embrace the joy of being wrong, bring nuance to charged conversations, and build schools, workplaces, and communities of lifelong learners. You'll learn how an international debate champion wins arguments, a vaccine whisperer convinces concerned parents to immunize their children, and Adam has coaxed Yankee fans to root for the Red Sox. Think Again reveals that we don't have to believe everything we think or internalize everything we feel. It's an invitation to let go of views that are no longer serving us well and prize mental flexibility over foolish consistency. If knowledge is power, then knowing what we don't know is wisdom. One final thing before we wrap up here is I have a favor to ask. If you thought of anyone while listening to this episode because they are in school to do this or you just think they would find it interesting, please send it to them. The goal here is to help out as many different people as possible, learn about as many different careers and paths as possible. So if you would like to help out that mission, I would greatly appreciate it. Please also feel free to reach out at Starting Somewhere Pod on Instagram and at Starting Pod on Twitter. Thank you to everyone who listened to this episode, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Ooh, I need some love.